Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. There's loads of great advice on how to do sponsorship right, but with all the advice, steps, guides, hints and tips available, it isn't an exact science and it is a challenge in actual application. Plus, we're all human. We make mistakes. And Chris Bayless from the Sponsorship Collective thinks a lot of you are sinners. Now, you might remember Chris from way back in episode 16 in August 2016, where we had a wide-ranging chat about all things sponsorship. And it's definitely a show worth re-listening to. Now, recently I saw a great piece of content that Chris had produced called The Seven Deadly Sins of Sponsorship. And not only was it a blog, but an awesome and handy infographic as well. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and welcome to episode 61 of Inside Sponsorship, where we take you inside the sponsorship and commercial programs of both rights holders and brands right around the world. Thanks so much for tuning into the show and giving up some of your valuable time to learn from others in the industry. No shout-outs this time. I haven't heard from anyone, which makes me sad. We love hearing from you guys, even if it is just to say you're a listener and that you're out there. It's awesome to know you are out there and enjoying the show, so please drop me a line using daniel at sponsor.net or just find me on LinkedIn. I loved the framing of Chris's seven deadly sins of sponsorship because instead of the normal six steps to or how to content framing and guide and advice, it instead attempts to play on our guilt and our desire not to be the naughty one. So I asked Chris if he'd join us again and run us through the seven deadly sins of sponsorship. But before we hear from Chris, Daniel Ferguson Hill, Sponsorv's commercial manager for Australia and New Zealand, joins us to discuss his first blog for Sponsorv and it is a a cracker and Daniel outlines the four main things that he thinks brands who are renewing or negotiating new sports-based sponsorships should get right to help them ensure success. Here's Daniel. Daniel Ferguson Hill, welcome to the show. First time ever on the show. How nervous are you? Fairly nervous. Uh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Have you done much prep? Have you have you hydrated? Have you have you practiced your answers? How have you prepared for the podcast? <laughs> Uh, nothing really. I've got a bottle of water next to me. That's about it. Should I should I have prepared a little more? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure you'll be in the top <laughs> three sponsor of employees who have been on this podcast by the end of the show. So uh, we look forward to the the, the listeners' feedback. And, and you're a long time listener before you actually join the company, so I think you're going to be just fine. And you're here to focus on brands and sports based sponsorships, either with renewals or because a brand is considering uh, moving into sports based sponsorships. And you've written a blog on it, haven't you? Yeah, it's it's something that you know. I mean, at Sponsor, we've got the luxury of talking to so many different rights holders and, and brands across the world. And it's you know, I was scrolling on LinkedIn not long ago, and I saw that there's that many deals happening at the moment. So we we had to put pen to paper and and, and let people know what we were seeing and hearing. And why is this such an important time of the year that we should be discussing these types of things that we're going to discuss as we go on? Well, it, it depends on where you are in the world. I mean, sporting codes events, you know, they're either about to start or finish their, their season. So it means rights holders are either going to go and hunt for new sponsorship deals or perhaps renew slash extend existing deals. So it really is the perfect time if you're sitting in the brand seat to have a quick look at, at your strategy to, towards sponsorship. Uh, and also, you, you know, what are you doing with your existing deal? Um, can you improve it? Can you change things? Uh, how's it tracking for you, etc. And to be honest, with the foresight of knowing the things that you and I are going to chat about uh, as the, the, the discussion goes on, this is probably stuff that all brands could be keeping top of mind at any time of the year, not just at, at, at renewal time and not just at review time and negotiation time, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the sheer fact that there's that many different research reports, that many different insights that brands can get their hands on at, you know, at any stage of the year, uh, which gives them a good snapshot of the audience that they're trying to talk to or they're exploring. So yeah, you're right, There's any time of year is really good for them. And of course, not everybody, while we're going to focus on sports sponsorships here, not everybody has purely just sports sponsorships. So that might have sponsorships across a number of sectors which aren't really beholden to a season starting and ending when those contracts are the lengths of the deals that they have. But there is an art to getting this time of the year 
right, and you've put together, as I've alluded to a couple of times, four things that you think brands should be keeping top of mind in negotiations. What's the first one? So first is go beyond what gets on TV. Uh, so despite audience numbers staying relatively high for most codes, most sports and events, brands really need to consider their approach to traditional signage, advertising, uh, you know, that, that brand play during the broadcast coverage. So your starting point should really be the, the plethora of ad break opportunities across uh, most codes. So uh, the rise in dual screen usage is just ridiculous. Uh, you might be getting great QI, media value uh, on an asset, but can you really be confident in exactly how many of those eyeballs are engaged or actively engaged uh, at that time of your ad? Uh, I, I don't know about you, but if I'm watching a game, uh, the amount of times I'm on my phone at the same time is, is ridiculous. And I sometimes get yelled at, but, uh, you know, we're, fans or, or a brand's audience, are, you know, as I just said, we're all looking at social media, websites, apps, you name it. And it's all during coverage uh, so that we can see, digest, engage with key moments, opinions, reactions, or even look at stats. So, my advice to brands is get creative around this. Ask your rights holder around their over-the-top engagement strategy or OTT uh, and, and delve a little deeper into the opportunities that you can see. So, for example, ask them how you might be able to leverage your existing ads with naming rights of a stats page uh, or potentially offer a, a cool prize for an in-game or, or event competition. I think it's great advice and it's, it's something that we've, as marketers, we've spoken about for, for years. It's a fairly common concept and that is what share of wallet can you have of somebody's uh, spending power because you can't give your target audience more money to spend but you can take a greater percentage of that spend sometimes and for me that's really about applying that concept here is it's almost share of eyeball or share of attention because if they're not engaged with you on that second screen they will be sharing that attention or those eyeballs with somebody else so it's important that you actually focus on it next one I know is is really important to the things that we talk to people day in, day out. And I know Mark will be very pleased with this. So you're going to get a gold star, potentially employee of the month nomination. What is it? <laughs> and I promise uh, that's not why this one's number two, <laughs> but it's it's tell stories. So And it's, it's going to sound very recycled and that's because it is. Uh, but nonetheless, it's still really important. So in, in the sponsorship game, there's there's winners and there's losers. The, the winners are the brands who understand that sponsorship is not just a one-way street. They don't just pay a fee and expect sales or engagement to increase twofold. They they understand the power of stories and act on that to create something meaningful, uh, something very recent and powerful. And it's not actually in the blog, uh, but Nike and Colin Kaepernick. I mean, I, I don't think I need to say much more around that, uh, but that's just exploding and there's, there's a lot of meaning behind that. Uh, it's got everyone talking, everyone engaging. Uh, another brand that's absolutely nailed it is Steggles. Um, they're a major sponsor of the Sydney Roosters here in the Australian National Rugby League competition. If you follow the code in Australia, if you cast your mind back to the themed women in league ground back in 2017, uh, what they did is just awesome. It's it, it, I take my hat off to the Roosters and Steggles for putting this together, but in the same position as the Steggles front of jersey branding, players were able to showcase the names of the most important females in their life. So staff, members, fans are then able to do exactly the same. And the end result, amazing content creation, lots of powerful stories, you know, spikes in merchandise sales as well. So there's one very big tick towards brand recognition and consideration as well. And you mentioned it there, you know, there was tell stories, there's engagement with with fans. You spoke about the Nike uh, current campaign that's got some good and some bad press, mostly good but some bad, but it does really engage the fans. And that's your next point, isn't it, is to really then look to involve the fans. How do we do that? Yeah, absolutely. So now it's number three, involve fans. So it's whether it's it's a sporting team or an event that they're attending, fans are fanatical. Um, you and I are classic examples of them, whether it's Parramatta or, or the Broncos. Uh, but brands who connect with fans off the back of this win big time. So if brands aren't connecting directly with their target audience through broadcast, they need to explore other ad-free avenues. So, for example, as I said, I'm, I'm a tragic Brisbane Broncos supporter and I cannot help myself but read the Ladbrokes Five Things to Know content on Facebook that's shared by the Broncos 24 hours before kickoff. 
I'm engaged, I'm hooked, and I'm constantly looking for that even before a game's even started. So, you know, don't, don't get too crazy. Remember that you've always got to stick to objectives. Uh, so there's much more to sponsorship than, than sort of just logo placement. Um, and off the back of that, you know, McDonald's recently used the World Cup to launch its milk delivery service by Uber Eats in countries like France, Korea, and Germany. With that, they added over 200 additional stores so that fans could eat at you know, any godly hour. Uh, and I mean, if, if brands are trying to loop executive teams and finance teams in into the conversations, they love when sponsorship spend equals additional revenue streams. Um, another cool example in Australia was from electronics giant Samsung. And if Bo, if you're listening to this episode, I'm taking my hat off to you, seriously genius. Just before the World Cup, Samsung launched Timvite, which was an interactive digital campaign that encouraged fans to invite their friends over uh, for big matches via a personalised video invitation on a chatbot from Socceroos legend Tim Cahill. Uh, I don't know about you, but if I sent that to one of my friends or, or family, uh, I think that would have been seriously cool. I wish I'd jumped on board with well, that. I would just want to but... send that to myself. <laughs> it's, it, it's such a cool idea. And, you know, plenty of brands are doing really good things. It's, you know, we can't really track all of them, but it's, all of those examples, brands are looking and going, okay, all of our branding and our exposure is, is to one side. How do we get people involved with our brand? How do we get them engaging with our brand? You know, both during the event and then away from it. But, uh, you know, connecting and, and engaging with people away from the game is, is so critical to success these days. And if you want some more examples of that, if you, you would have listeners probably heard Sam Irvine on the podcast a couple episodes ago now, I think, uh, talking about some of those uh, activations that people like Budweiser did around the World Cup. And you can go to the sponsor.net website under resources, go to the blog section. You can see some really cool videos that, that really highlight what Daniel's just spoken about just then. So, Daniel, you've spoken about go beyond what gets on TV We've spoken about ad nauseum here on the podcast and with everybody that we talk to about telling stories and the importance of them, also about involving the fans. What's the fourth thing that people really should be keeping top of mind during this time of year with negotiations in for sponsorship deals? It's, it's probably a really crucial one and arguably the most important. And it's think beyond share of voice. Share of voice is a very traditional means of how we measure sponsorship. So if we're moving away from it in today's market, it's a really important point. So I saw a, a great statement from, from Misha Sher at Mediacom Worldwide, and it, it stuck with me uh, when speaking to a few brands lately. But share of voice doesn't necessarily translate to share of mind, especially when consumers are wanting closer relationships with brands. The smartest ones, or the smartest brands, I should say, recognise that their sponsorship deal with the right holder is only the first step, and we've sort of touched on it today, the brands who seem to get this right are the ones that you hear the most, you see the most, whether it's through signage, activations, OTT or sponsored content, linkages to cause marketing. I mean, you know, there's so much more. You'll be able to think of dozens off the top of your head and it's not just one avenue, but one of the best ways to truly know if your sponsorship is working is to ask yourself, if I stop sponsoring X, this particular team, who would notice? Or... If I changed where our brand appears, would I still reach the same audience? Would they still think the same? This is where your share of voice questions really need to start. Um, you know, are you doing the same thing that every other brand is doing or, you know, the same thing that you've always done in sponsorship? If so, why would you expect different results if you're doing the same thing? And Einstein said that that was the definition of insanity, right? What, what do you think? Are we on the right path in that sense? I think so. I think... You're right. I look at it from a little bit of a different angle. You know, you spoke about if I stop sponsoring X, who would notice? Or maybe if I change where our brand appears, would I still reach the same audience? I think that they're great questions to ask, but maybe link them back up with those the, the first questions you ask when you do any marketing and, and you know you ask these questions and it might lead you down that sponsorship path because you want to try and access an audience which you would otherwise find really difficult to access without partnering with a rights holder and that is why are we doing this because you might notice differences in your business but if that doesn't actually directly affect your objectives and your goals for your overall marketing then maybe you should put a pin in that sponsorship or maybe you get the answer that says you know what we are on the right path 
Yeah, and, and exactly. You, you, you probably want to use all four of these points together rather than just using one overall, all of them. Definitely. Now, lots of brands are renewing and negotiating sponsorships right now. We've spoken about that. What separates those brands who can negotiate a great deal versus those that will just get an average one? <laughs> it's probably uh, a question that all sponsorship managers on the brand side are asking themselves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from our point, you know, what separates brands getting a great deal versus an average deal at this time of year is their willingness to dig deeper, lift the lid of a proposal or an existing deal and ask questions. It's also worth considering taking 5% or you know, even 10% of your sponsorship spend and reallocating or increasing it to try something that sounds a little risky and new. You know, that's, that's putting your rights holder on the front foot saying, come up with some creative ideas, let's do this together. Uh, you know, you might surprise yourself. Any travel coming up where people can get in contact and you'll buy them a coffee and talk shop? Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're down in Melbourne uh, the back end of this month, and then I've got a sneaky trip to New Zealand uh, beginning of October as well. Very good. And uh, if you'd like to read what Daniel's just spoken about at your own speed, just head along to the blog section uh, and head to the resources at sponsor.net where you can read it in all its glory. Thanks for joining us and safe travels. Thanks, mate. Chris Bayless is the president and CEO of the Sponsorship Collective, and recently I saw a great piece of content that Chris had produced called The Seven Deadly Sins of Sponsorship, and not only was it a fantastic blog, but an awesome and handy infographic went along with that blog as well. So I got in contact with Chris, and I asked Chris if he would join us on the show and run us through The Seven Deadly Sins of Sponsorship. Here's Chris. Chris Bayless, President and CEO of the Sponsorship Collective. This is your second time that we've had you on the show. So welcome back. How have you been? Oh, Daniel, great. Thanks for having me back. I'm, I'm surprised you had me back after the terrible performance last time. Uh, just kidding. It was, a, it was a lot of fun and I heard from a lot of folks uh, actually emailing me saying, I can't believe you're on this podcast. So, uh, so you, you made me famous. So thank you. Very good. My pleasure. Now, Chris, since we... Uh, last had you on the show and you joined us. I've refined our icebreaker questions and I thought it was only fair to pose one or two of the new ones to you as well, not let you off the hook. And and I've got two. Love the it. first one is, if you could be anyone else in the world for a day, who would you be and why? Uh, okay. Uh, I would be Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, one, because, uh, well, certainly he's fabulously wealthy, but I... I have to figure out what is going on in this, inside this man's head, and that's the only way. Second one is, if there was a fire at your house, and there's a caveat here, you can't, your wife, your kids, your dog, your phone, and your laptop are off the list, they are safe, but if there was a fire at your house, what's the next thing you grab and make sure that it's safe? So on my desk, uh, in, my, in my home office, I have a one of those really kind of tacky Mickey Mouse uh, picture frames, right? It's shaped like Mickey Mouse. And in that picture frame is my wife and I uh, with our nephews. Uh, we went to Disney a few years back. And, uh, and so there's these pictures of us going on rides, making horrifying, embarrassing faces because they take a picture as you go like down the roller coaster <laughs> and stuff. And so that is, that is easily one of my, most prized memories and uh, and prized possessions. So that would that would be top of my list. Great answer. I love it. Now, Chris, you're the president and CEO of the Sponsorship Collective. For those that might not have listened to you when you were first on the podcast, tell us a little bit about what the Sponsorship Collective is all about. Yeah, so uh, we, we focus, at least right now, uh, mainly in the Canadian and uh, US markets. And uh, although, Daniel, uh, you and I were talking before before we kicked off that, there are top secret plans uh, for me to be in Australia for a bit of the next year. So we're, we're, we're coming for you. Uh, but at, at, at the heart of what we do uh, is uh, valuation. Right? Our, our role as a, as a service provider, as a consulting firm, is to figure out what your stuff is worth when you're talking to sponsors. Uh, and, and our particular approach involves quite a bit of audience data. We sort of take the position and hold the belief that without audience, you have nothing in sponsorship. But also, uh, valuation is tied directly to audience and audience segments. And you can't do evaluation unless you know who your audience is. And you can't build activations unless you know who your audience is. So 
while I say we're a valuation firm, uh, we go a bit deeper, I think, than perhaps the average uh, the average valuation uh, shop in that we want to really get to know audience and we find that's the, that's the best way to sell. So you know, I think it's better, more apropos to call me a sponsorship geek than it is the CEO of the Sponsorship Collective because ultimately we toil away and build great big spreadsheets for people. Outstanding. Now, I invited you back on the show because, and we were talking off air about content marketing and how successful that can be for businesses. And it was one of your blogs that caught my eye a while back, and it was called The Seven Deadly Sins of Sponsorship. Where'd you get that idea for that topic from? Yeah, so I do a ton of speaking. I travel and go and do the conference circuit quite a lot. And uh, and what I noticed is that all of the questions I get from from the crowd, from the audience, they started to come up again and again and again and again, where people were using the word sponsorship to define something that actually wasn't sponsorship. Uh, they weren't talking about activation. They were talking about getting free stuff, right, in kind or, or trade um, and calling that sponsorship. Or when they say sponsorship, they mean the sponsorship package. They weren't actually describing this multidisciplinary practice that sponsorship really refers to. And so as I kept hearing these questions, uh, I, I could feel my blood pressure rising. And so <laughs> I decided to sit down and write a blog post that is at least um, 50% cathartic, 50% educational, where um, ultimately I'm saying, if you're doing these seven things or any of these seven things, you are literally killing your sponsorship uh, package. And I, I, uh, I went to Catholic school uh, as, a, as a young man, so I, I have that deep-seated um, uh, shame within me. And so seven deadly sins just came naturally. <laughs> By saying that they're killing their sponsorship, are they essentially just leaving money on the table? Is that what you're getting at there? Yeah. So I think the answer to that is yes, that they're leaving money on the table, but I would go so far. So that, but to me, that doesn't sound um, bad enough, right? Like, okay, so we're only getting 15 K for a $18,000 sponsorship deal. That, that actually isn't the case. They're actually leaving all of the money on the table in some cases. So you send a a sponsorship proposal to a prospect that has no audience data, no activation ideas, no strategy, uh, no budget. It isn't just that you're undervaluing your opportunities. You're actually just sending your sponsorship package to the garbage, uh, plain and simple. And so, you know, I hear from people all the time in reaction to this blog post, um, uh, well, you know what? I did get some sponsorship using these archaic practices. Therefore, it does work. Uh, and, and my response to them is always, if you're able to close some sponsorship using terrible practices, imagine how much easier and how much more money you would get using best practice. And consistently, we hear from people, clients, uh, webinar attendees, so people who pay for our knowledge, but also people who just consume our knowledge for free. They're seeing two, three times the revenue by changing their approach to sponsorship sales, um, uh, doing very little else differently, just changing the way they think about sponsorship. So, you know, to say that, yes, we're leaving money on the table, uh, no question, but sometimes it's the difference between a million dollars and no dollars, right? It can, it can be that significant. And it's probably more luck than good execution that makes that difference, right? Yeah, so I think the kind of the old school, I mean, I call it old school, we all call it old school, but it's not so, it's not really that old because people are still doing it, but the old school approach to sponsorship takes something that is necessarily a business to business marketing and sales transaction and converts it to direct mail, uh, which is necessarily a very small um, uh, conversion rate, success rate. So you take this thing that requires good discovery, good needs assessment, building out comprehensive offerings for your prospect and you turn it into a scattershot approach. You send out a thousand packages and you get three yeses. Um, so, so I would say absolutely. You, you take the, you, you take the skill out of the equation and you convert it to a luck of the draw scenario, uh, which is, which is a really, it's just a, a bad and inefficient way I think to sell something that is worthy of more effort like sponsorship. 
I'd 100% agree. So let's jump into the seven deadly sins. Number one is a lack of sponsorship valuation. Surely people know how to value what they can offer. I think we've been around this boy so much. Is it still still really a big issue? Yeah, it is. And so it's a, it's a really, really big issue uh, where people are either not doing the valuation because they don't know how to. Uh, for those who don't know how to, I say... Uh, I've written a 4,000-word blog post on how to do evaluation. I run the first accessible for free. You guys have great content. Um, uh, the practical sponsorship ideas, uh, Kim out of, uh, uh, out of Australia has all kinds of cool tools. Like, there's so much information out there that we can no longer – I can no longer accept the I don't know how to do it reason for not doing valuation. I actually think there's a fear. There's a fear that they'll – that you'll do it wrong. There's a fear that um, that it's too technical. And I think that when you look at the average or above average sponsorship salesperson, they're relationship builders, they're charismatic, they're incredibly intelligent, they're not interested in building big spreadsheets. Those details are not suited usually for the for the, the stellar salesperson's mind. Um, so I think it just doesn't play to the strengths. But but all that to say, I don't know exactly why, but people are not doing their valuation. And what's happening more and more, I'm happy to report, is that sponsors are saying, great, that you want 50000 you want a million dollars, go and get a valuation done by a third party because we don't accept this valuation. Uh, and I'll add to that, we want a two-to-one or a three-to-one ROI. So, so not only do you have to do evaluation, but you have to actually build in measurement of return on investment. So not doing evaluation uh, without question leaves money on the table. I almost never see properties who uh, overvalue. People are constantly undervaluing and being taken advantage of, but then it makes it impossible to measure ROI. So rampant, I would say in the sector, uh, the lack of valuation. Deadly sin number two is the sponsorship proposal first method. If that's a sin, what should the order of action be? Yeah, so uh, so to me, the sponsorship proposal, if you're going to build a sponsorship package in response to a sponsor who's insisting you send them something before they meet with you first, then creating a business case, a sponsorship package that is intensely focused on your audience, no ask. Uh, right, no, no telling you how much money um, you should spend. No gold, silver, bronze grid. None of that stuff. Just an audience profile. I'm okay with that. But my preferred approach is property understands its audience. Property understands who, uh, what their audience wants, and has built activations that add value. Then you do your prospect research. And have a meeting with your prospect. Have a phone call with your prospect. Have a cup of coffee with your prospect. And I can already hear the pushback now. They're not willing to meet with me. I hate to break it to you, but if they're not willing to have a phone call with you, they're not going to read your 30-page sponsorship package. So if they don't want to talk to you, they're actually not a prospect. So have your meeting with your prospect. Find out what they truly care about, what they're passionate about, what they, what they need in order to justify the investment. Then from your sponsor, your sponsor and your audience data, then you make a sponsorship package. So a proposal, if you even use one, is actually step three or four in this process. Uh, but the biggest sponsorship deals I've closed, uh, this, this is multi-million dollar sponsorship deals, I never created a sponsorship package. We had conversations, we had meetings, we negotiated, and we went right to agreement. So this belief that a proposal is required for sponsorship is incorrect. Uh, and the idea that you should start with your ask document before you've even met with, with folks is is a, a tragic approach to sponsorship. And for me, I think the real point of difference there is that those multi-million dollar sponsorship deals that you described that you can close without ever having to put together a proposal is all about working with the prospect slowly and working together. And I hate to throw the word out because we always use it, and that's partnership. But working in partnership to figure out what the sponsorship should look like as opposed to you trying to sell one. 
That's right. And I will say from personal experience, so I, I used to be a sponsor and as the, the CEO of a company, we spend a great deal on sponsorship. We invest a great deal in sponsorship. And when people send me a sponsorship package, uh, that's one of 160 emails I'm going to receive that day. I, I get so many emails that I'm at the point now where I have, I, I have an assistant who filters my emails. I just can't keep up. But when a note comes through saying, Chris, here's the audience coming to our conference. Do you have time for five minutes so I can understand how your business works so that I can put something together for you? My assistant knows to schedule those for me when I'm in the car, when I'm traveling. It's a perfect time for me to have a conversation. I never say no when someone comes to me and says, I think I've got your target market. Here's the target market that I think I have. I only want to offer you things that are going to add value to that audience. I, I have already said yes in my mind uh, before I've even spoken to them. So, you know, experientially, as well as best practice um, theory, really says that the, the best way to approach sponsorship is to use the best sales tool in your tool belt. And that's you, the individual, not uh, not a package. Deadly seed number three. Now, look, I'm surprised this isn't number one because I know you're pretty passionate about it. And that's in-kind sponsorship. Yeah. So... And I, and so for the for the uh, for the listener, you can't see my passive aggressive quotes on the word sponsorship for that deadly <laughs> deadly sin. Uh, look, getting free stuff for your event is costing you thousands of dollars. I don't know how else to say that. You have a gala, right? A really simple example, and someone quote gives you the wine to be really nice to you because they care about the community or whatever. Uh, you're saving a couple hundred bucks. And you just uh, removed a $5,000 sponsorship opportunity. Uh, my boss once said to me, go get a free photo booth and we'll call them the photo booth sponsor. The problem with that approach, of course, is that I'm the photo booth salesperson target audience. They don't want to give me stuff for free. So instead, I went to an accounting firm and got them to sponsor the photo booth and we turned it into a superhero photo booth. So people got to come and dress up like Batman and Superman and Bane and, and, and really like let loose and have a good time using the photo booth as their kind of their point of contact with the sponsor. Uh, and when we surveyed the audience after, they all told us the photo booth was the highlight of the gala. And we sold it for $25,000 to the rights holder. Uh, uh, sorry, to the to the sponsor. Instead of just saving three hundred bucks on the photo booth rental, we've went and found a sponsor. So this idea that sponsorship is all about just reducing your costs by getting stuff for free uh, is a really short sighted approach. When we take on a client, the first thing we do is ask them for their list of in kind sponsorship deals. That makes up the bulk of their cash sponsorship. Uh, so. If you've got people coming to your event and giving away samples and you're letting them do that for free because you think it adds value to your audience, I don't know how else to say this. You're crazy. You're leaving so much money on the table. Stop doing that immediately. <laughs> As I said, I'm surprised that wasn't number one. Now, number four is thinking <laughs> – I, I It was really hard for me to watch. It was hard for me to watch my language and keep this PG for, <laughs> for that deadly sin. It drives me crazy. <laughs> That's number three. Number four is thinking that sponsorship is corporate philanthropy. Surely that's getting money. That's okay, isn't it? What's wrong with that? Yeah, you know, it's so I have some colleagues and friends who say that actually there's no such thing as corporate philanthropy. Um, I, I don't actually agree with that. I think corporate philanthropy can exist. Here's the problem, though. You reach out to a company and you say, hey, guys, we're going to help a thousand kids in the community. You're a company. You should give us money. Uh, oh, and we're going to throw your logo on some stuff. As the recipient of your proposal or the online form, if I'm in marketing, I read that and think, oh, this is all about the cause. I'm going to send this over to the foundation. But then at the foundation, they read this and say, oh, well, it's about the cause, but we can't actually put our logos on stuff because that puts us offside with, with the, the tax man. Uh, we, we can't use foundation money to invest in marketing. That's highly unethical and inappropriate. So it goes back to the marketing team and then back to the foundation team until someone throws it in the garbage. So the problem isn't so much uh, wanting corporate philanthropy from, from companies. I don't think that's a great strategy, but, but uh, at least in North America, sponsorship is a $13-plus billion industry. Um, 
if I'm if I'm trying to get money and I'm a charity not for profit, I'm going sponsorship all the way, not hoping that a company will just give me money. But but the problem is when people try to blend both, right? We're gonna get some donations because we're a good cause and we'll throw their logo on some stuff because hey, that's what sponsorship is. When you blend it, when you mistake the two for each other, one, it makes you lazy and you don't harvest audience data because you think your mission is enough. And two, it sends a confusing message. And if I am trying to get money for my charity, if I'm, if I'm a charity and I'm up against the Montreal Canadians who have the same audience and the Montreal Canadians, the hockey team are speaking the language of marketing as a sponsor, I know which one I'm going to choose. So this idea that cause is enough uh, is really damaging. And it, and in fact, we saw at least in Canada in 2013 causes the cause sponsorship space tank when multiple banks shifted over to sport. Uh, and the reason for this was charities are just not speaking the language of marketing. So it was enough for us to actually see major trends change uh, in the Canadian sponsorship landscape study uh, because of this blending of philanthropy and sponsorship. Brands, uh, uh, sorry, non-charity rights holders, non-charity rights holders like sport municipalities are still guilty of this. Right? You're not thinking of it as corporate philanthropy because you're not a charity, but you think that your brand is enough, right? Of course, a company wants to work with us. We're, we're the Miami Dolphins, but actually it all comes down to audience and activation. You could probably, or there would be occasions where you could probably trade on the name. You know, if you're the Miami Dolphins, yes, of course people would want to work for us. But And you might get a few in the door, a little bit like sending, you know, a thousand sponsorship proposals out and you get three or four bites. You might get some people saying yes in those types of scenarios, but they're not going to be sustainable long-term relationships, partnerships, real sponsorships that are beneficial to both parties. So you're ultimately going to churn those fairly quickly, aren't you? That's right. Absolutely. And uh, just because something works some of the time is not justification that it is the right approach for all partnerships. So sure, uh, Under Armour probably will just get on board. I don't know if this is true, but we'll just get on board with football teams, period. Right. They've got a strategy for that. However, if you can sit down with Under Armour and say, you tell me who your target market is and then tell me the thing that every one of your customers does before they buy your product. What's the thing they do right before they buy a shirt? Well, they, they come into our store. Perfect. How can we get more people into your store? How can we get more people to your online store? If you can have that kind of a conversation, actually your brand doesn't matter anymore. So that's one. And two, if something catastrophic happens to your brand and all you've been selling is your cause or the value of your brand, or someone comes along and is just cooler than you, which can happen at any time, you've completely lost that sponsorship opportunity. But when your audience is passionate about you as a brand, as a cause, uh, that audience isn't going anywhere. And, and you're protecting yourself against the dips if you can actually turn your audience into customers of, of, the, of the sponsor. Deadly sin number five is not having a sponsorship activation strategy or budget. Is that all around the commitment not stopping just because you signed the paperwork and everybody's slapping each other on the back and high fives and posing for the cameras? Yeah, exactly. So what, what we hear a lot from people uh, is on the back end of a, of a sponsorship deal. <clears throat> so, you know, event wraps, conference wraps, season wraps. And then I hear from a client saying, oh, man, how do I rescue these relationships that have gone sour? Uh, and, of course, my first question is, well, why is your sponsor unhappy? And they say, well, we forgot to put their logo on X. We didn't do as many e-blasts as we said. We were going to do a contest, um, uh, but, but, you know, we just got so busy. Uh, or, you know, we didn't have as many people come to this event as we expected. And so my next question is, well, how did that happen? And the answer is always the same. The sponsor didn't send it to me. The sponsor didn't tell me. The sponsor didn't share it with me. And so there's this belief, uh, erroneous belief, that the sponsor, um, because they're investing the money, is going to be thinking of this um, uh, partnership year-round. 
every day, but that's not how it works. They're actually relying on you, the property, to keep them on pace. So when I talk about an activation strategy, I mean a plan to get everything you need from your sponsor, get approvals from your sponsor, and actually track that you're delivering, which ties in well to the next deadly sin, but we'll talk about that in a second. You're going to need this data. And the other thing that's really missing when I talk about activation strategy is audience-centric activations. You go to an event and have to listen to yet another sponsor speak for 30 seconds before the event kicks off. It's completely unappealing. But you go to an event and get more of what you want and, and, and less of what you don't want and have an incredibly positive experience. And the reason that experience is so positive is because of the sponsor's uh, intervention via activation. Your, your experience as an audience member goes up, right? It improves, and you can charge so much more money for that. So activation strategy is kind of a double meaning. One is actually just doing what you said you would, but also it has to be based on adding value to the audience. When we did the superhero photo booth, uh, we reached out to the audience and asked them what they thought of our event. And overwhelmingly, they said it was boring and they hated it, (laughs) but they had to go. They were required. It was an industry conference. They had no choice, (laughs) but they hated it. (laughs) So we went to a sponsor and we told them this and we asked the sponsor, how can we make this event awesome? How can we together make this event fun? And so activation in the broadest sense really is about adding value to your audience. Uh, but in a really practical sense, it's making sure that you deliver on every single asset you have to offer. Uh, and and uh, maybe this isn't appropriate to say, but the folks that sponsor have some pretty amazing tools to prevent you from having Deathly Sin number he five he uh, he. on you. <laughs> uh, and so... You know, if you're having trouble tracking that stuff, I send people to sponsor all the time. So I'm probably not supposed to be so overt about telling people how much I love what you guys do, but but the secret's out. Uh, protect yourself and make sure you're keeping your sponsors and your audience happy. Very good. And, that, and ultimately, that was the genesis for uh, our software was that we knew people were struggling to keep track of the activation plans, things were getting missed, they didn't know whether they had certain pieces of information and ultimately, and I thought you were going to segue into the next deadly sin for me halfway through that answer, but ultimately that always leads to the next point and deadly sin number six, which is the missing sponsorship fulfillment report. But with so much access to analytics and data and reports in all other areas of marketing, it, it does strike me as really weird that people still can't get this right. Yeah. So, I, you know, we're, we're going to talk about the sales cycle uh, in a bit, but but there's, there is this uh, overt, but maybe and sometimes subtle belief that sponsorship is about the sale, right? We call it sponsorship sales instead of what it should be called, which is sponsorship marketing. We call it sponsorship sales. So you get the sale and you move on to the next one, right? We're always measured on how much revenue we bring in, never on how happy our sponsors are, never on how happy our audience is, whether or not we added value. And so I think that the, the lack of measurement and then the lack of reporting uh, comes from this, I think, inappropriate focus on just the sale. And so this isn't me telling you you should sell less. You should actually sell more. And the way to sell more is at the end of your agreement, at the end of your campaign, at the end of your event, season, uh, series, is to take your activation strategy, all the things you promised your sponsor, you've done your valuation, so you know what those things are worth, and then go and look at what you actually delivered to your sponsor. And your goal should always be to over-deliver. Uh, always. We call this a the two-to-one or three-to-one ROI return on investment rule. You should be delivering two or three times the value of what your sponsor paid. And so after the, the we'll call it the agreement ends, you deliver to your sponsor in person a report proving the reach you got them through social media, the, the sampling opportunities, if that was your goal, the, if you're promising to drive web traffic. You want to be tracking that. And you want your sponsor to track that report back to you. Uh, you All of the things you offered go in a report along with photos and screenshots of everything you delivered. Then you take that to your sponsor 
or you send it to them and have a phone meeting, depending on uh, what's ex- what's uh, preferred by your sponsor, not by you. And you sit down with them, you go through the report and ask them what they thought. Ask them what their experience was and whether or not they felt they had good value. And so by doing this, you actually put yourself in a position to secure next year's sponsorship on the spot. If they were unhappy, you can fix it. You have a couple of months to fix it. If they were really happy, you've earned the right to say, this is what we did together at this price point. We delivered. How can we work together to get you even more of this stuff? What kind of things would it take to, move, to increase your investment by 50%? What do I have to give you to justify that investment? And can I put together a proposal, a draft proposal, based on this conversation to get your feedback? The fulfillment report is the ultimate sales tool. Your next million-dollar sponsorship isn't coming from a cold contact. It's coming from somebody who's already sponsoring at an entry or mid-level and, and are wanting you to prove that you can deliver, that you've earned their, earned their trust and earned their investment. And so when people talk to me about trying to increase their sales, uh, the absolute best way to do that is to take your current sponsorship pool start doing fulfillment reports, do a sponsor summit, and move those people up the ladder using using these tools. So I would say that um, of, of my clients, of our clients, uh, of which we've worked with many, uh, I have had two um, in the last year and a half who were doing fulfillment reports before we met. Wow. So in other words, yeah. And we, I mean, we work with, uh, with the full range Um uh, from sport to cause to municipalities, education, and uh, and virtually none are going back to the sponsor and saying, thank you for your investment. Here's proof that we took care of you. It's crazy. I, I don't even know what to say to that. As you were talking, a really important little piece that happens throughout that year between the signing of the contract and, you know, contracts can be multiple years, but getting to an end-of-year or end-of-season financial report, tracking all of that stuff that you're supposed to be delivering, keeping evidence of it. You spoke about the over-delivering. Really important to track that stuff that you're over-delivering because sponsors will remember things they didn't get, but they won't remember the extra player appearance or the extra 10 tickets you helped out. And if you're putting those, if you're collating all of those things together in the report and separating and highlighting them and saying, this is where I went over and above, it brings it front and center, which obviously greases the wheels when they're talking about, you know, internally, if they're going through the, the, the schedule A of benefits that they're supposed to receive and they say, yes, we got those, we got those. Did we get that? Don't think so. Cross, not sure. When they're talking about budget again and you're showing that you're over-delivering plus delivering what you're supposed to, you're going to be streaks ahead, right? Definitely. And also, if you, if you aim to over-deliver and then, I don't know, let's say cricket is always played outside and cricket never, you don't play cricket in the rain and you get rained out more often than you expected. Therefore, you're not delivering on the, on the assets, right, that, that you promised your sponsor. But if you aim to over-deliver, then you can go to your sponsor and say, look, we missed on these four things. And you should always be honest with your sponsor if you missed. But we over-delivered on these things. So the total value was actually significantly more than what you paid for. And then ask your sponsor, how do we protect your investment next year? Right? We, we don't know when, when the rains are going to come. What could we do instead as our backup plan together so that if it rains, we're, we're protected and we get the same outcomes? Not the same outputs, but the same outcomes. If you're doing stuff like that, when your sponsor is sitting around the decision-making table and they're looking at five agreements over the last year, and all five missed, but only one went way above and is wanting to work on a backup plan, you are absolutely going to, to knock those sponsorship deals out of the park. Uh, if you don't track this stuff and you hope that the sponsors who did show up just had a good time at your event um, uh, or at the game, that's probably true, but that's not enough. You, you really have to be providing this stuff. And also, if you're doing season-long or year-long agreements, you can do mini fulfillment reports, say, every quarter, 
and say to a sponsor, listen, we're over-delivering in these areas, but I'm worried that these pieces are falling behind. Here's why I think they're falling behind. Is this just not a priority to you? And if it isn't a priority, then you have an opportunity to renegotiate and give them more of the stuff that is. So it lets you revisit the agreements throughout the year, throughout the campaign, throughout the season, so that you're always offering sponsors what they want. It's more work, but you get to charge a significant premium if you do this stuff, uh, which is why valuation is so important. Some outstanding points there, but what was most impressive was your, as a Canadian, your knowledge of cricket. Now, deadly sin number seven, Chris, is not understanding the sponsorship sales cycle. Now, I know you've uh, been laughed at for putting this one out there, but surely in the industry, we're just full of people that really understand the sales cycle and how people are making budgeting and marketing decisions? Yeah. So there's definitely a divide. There's a chasm in in the sector where uh, those who are working for big shops with big budgets and big teams, uh, they're not guilty of this deadly sin. Uh, they Believe me, they're making many of the other deadly sins, but this one, they're not doing. The, 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 um, the reality is, though, that the big shops, while they might make up a big percentage of the overall sponsorship sales, they're actually not a big percentage of the number of transactions in any particular year, which means there's this huge sort of sea of people who are not uh, in the big shop, who have multiple other draws on their time that are outside of uh, sponsorship. So sponsorship becomes this like this afterthought or someone knocks on their door and says, Hey, Chris, uh, you know what? I forgot to budget for a photographer. Can you go get me $5,000 so I can hire a photographer for my event or whatever it is for those people, they're always behind or playing catch up. And so the most important thing, and I think this is actually uh, really I think this applies to the big shop too, is to think of your sales cycle as starting with the fulfillment report. So you may have an activation team and a fulfillment team out there delivering fulfillment reports on your behalf. Great, frees up lots of time. But that team has to understand that they're actually the first point of sale, that they are the people who are moving your sponsors up. So sales starts with fulfillment. No matter who you are, what size your shop is, you absolutely must think of that fulfillment meeting as essential and the number one step in your revenue generation. The next thing I'll say is many orgs, uh, sponsorship seekers, they start to look for sponsorship three or four months before their event, their season, their, their campaign, whatever it is. The problem with that is that most companies, certainly in North America, use a calendar, uh, a calendar year budget cycle, which means that they want your proposals in October, November at the latest so that they can decide before Christmas uh, where their money is going to go starting in January. So if you're planning a fall event uh, or let's say an October, November event, you actually need to be selling one full year before. If you're being invited to submit a proposal in October, November, you already know by virtue of this podcast that you need to have had at least two meetings with your sponsor, with your prospect before you submit a package. So you need to include that lead time. And before you can have a meeting with anyone, you have to have done your prospecting research. And before you can do prospecting research, you have to know who your audience is. You have to do your surveys. You have to really get deep into audience data. So that means you need three months, four months before that October, November submission deadline uh, uh, in order to sell sponsorship for the next year. So that means if you're kicking off sponsorship sales after January 1st, most decisions have already been made. And so now you're effectively fighting for that, that funding that is uh, 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 unconnected, it is unplanned for. Very few companies just have a pool of money to spend on sponsorship as it comes up. Most are budgeting ahead. So one of the, so one of the things, one of the biggest game changers, I would say, for most of our clients, most of the people we work with, uh, is just shifting their activities to match that cycle. That alone is enough to increase your sponsorship sales by 20 or 30%, right? Because you're having the right conversations with people at the right time, and you have enough time to submit a draft proposal and get their feedback versus just submitting something and hoping. 
So just changing when you're working with your sponsors can have a major positive impact uh, for one. Two, you'll, you should know before your budget year opens really how much money you, you should expect from sponsorship. So uh, no more of this arbitrary, let's just add $50,000 and, and hope for the best to our sponsorship uh, revenue goals. So shifting that timeline, very, very important. And it also forces your organization to address the other deadly sins. Uh, because in, in order to do these things, in order to get to the sale, you have to know your audience, you have to build activations, you have to do your valuation. So I think that, uh, that for some, uh, you know, the idea that they don't understand the sales cycle, uh, maybe they're right to laugh. But overwhelmingly, I see this mistake being made again and again. And an extension of this, ultimately, is focusing on the wrong things in the sales cycle. Right? We focus on the sale. That is success, right? That's not true. We actually have to be employing a moves management sales pipeline strategy. Right? You take a suspect, someone you think cares about you, someone you think wants to hear about you, and now you have to qualify them and turn them into a prospect. And then you take a prospect and get them to reply to your email. And then you take an email and get them to on the phone. And then you get a phone meeting to turn into a live meeting. Then that turns into a draft proposal submitted, which gets turned into an invitation to submit a full proposal. If you measure movement along each step of the sales cycle, and every day your goal is to move three prospects, just three, from suspect to prospect to email to phone to meeting to proposal, and you, and, and you your boss, your employees all focus just on movement, the sales will come. So it's not just about a sales calendar. It's actually about shifting focus away from the things that you have no control over, which in fact is the sale. That is a lag goal. We, you know, in the four disciplines of execution talks about a great book talks about the difference between lag and lead goals. A lead goal is something you can directly impact. And if you focus on those every single day, you don't go to meetings. You don't talk to people internally until you've achieved your goal for that day, which is to move three to five prospects along the sales pipeline, you will see a significant increase. And I know that the big shops, they're measuring bottom line as their only, their only indicator of success. Uh, and they're still dividing people's time among non-sales tasks. So we got, we have to shift focus to moves management, to lead goals, and we have to adjust our calendar to match that of our sponsor. And the last thing I'll say, uh, this was probably too long-winded of an answer, is whatever your sponsors tell you to do, whatever your prospects tell you to do, trumps all the advice I've given you today. If your sponsor tells you that they make decisions in April, then do not force them to fit your calendar. If a sponsor says, prospect says, we want you to come in and pitch, we don't need to see a draft proposal, do not force them through, uh, through your process. So Sponsor-centric, whatever a sponsor or prospect tells you trumps all, even even the, the ramblings of a sponsorship geek like myself. And ultimately, that touches on a lot of the key messages in most of your answers is about having conversations with suspects and prospects and leads to get an understanding of how their business works, what they want to achieve, what they need from you. Because even though you put out those steps, you know, you can put in a proposal and then get an invitation to put in a a full-blown contract and, and things like that. You yourself have missed those steps purely because you've been having conversations and, and focusing on the needs of the sponsor rather than on the needs of yourself. Definitely. Yeah, well said. And what's also interesting for me listening to you talk about that answer and me looking back at, at my notes is if you can address deadly sin number seven and understand the sales cycle and shift it like chris has spoken about you almost by virtue of focusing on that one eliminate a lot of the other deadly sins that's right exactly yeah the that deadly sin um ultimately is the most transformative i would say for your organization and your sales approach and this is this is why i say shifting focus just to that uh, that deadly sin it sort of contains all of them uh, so long as you are practicing real full-service sponsorship, uh, in other words, you are audience-focused, you are activation-focused, you are valuation-focused, uh, the calendar, setting up your sales cycle, and how you measure success, uh, 
uh, basically makes the rest almost a, uh, a no-brainer. A no-brainer with a lot of work, but a no-brainer nevertheless. Now, as you mentioned at the start, you come from a good Catholic background, so you're forced to fit in the deadly sins of the sponsorship industry into Seven, but I'm curious, were there any sins that didn't make the cut? Yeah, so I talk about audience data in a in sort of a uh, as a background to all of these all of these sins. But if I were to rewrite the seven deadly sins, uh, I would put as number one, not understanding your audience. What we see, and so the reason that we have incorporated audience profiling and analysis in the work we do is not because we want to. Uh, in fact, uh, as a is not really our area of strength. Um, uh, it's an area of interest of ours. It's because the audience data out there is so incredibly bad. It's, it is truly terrible. And so the biggest uh, and, and most important change you can make is to get audience data. And I'm not talking about male-female split and whether or not they're middle class or upper middle class. I'm talking about 30-plus data points, psychographic, demographic, uh, what brands they prefer, what type of sponsors they think you should be working with. We just wrapped up with a client. Uh, we surveyed their audience, and their audience said, please don't do deals with credit card companies. And I presented this to the team. The CEO was at the table, and he went gaunt uh, when I said this. And I said, what, what, what did I just say? And he said, we are just about to ink a deal with a credit card company. And I said, well, you may want to rethink that because your audience is telling you they don't want that, and they may rebel. And if your audience rebels and takes to social media and talks about how much they hate your sponsor, you are in big trouble. So you have to know who your audience is interested in uh, by way of who they think is the right brand fit. And lastly, you have to be able to answer the question to your sponsor. Can you even impact a purchasing decision? Is sponsorship of your property even something that, uh, that someone would consider? If the answer is uh, in a buying decision, if the answer is no, then your sponsorship opportunity is no better than a billboard. And your sponsors will find out but if they find out after the sponsorship deal, you're in trouble. Uh, and if you find out before you sell the deal, you can take actions to fix that. So it really audience data uh, underpins all of what we do in sponsorship, right? You can't build activations for your sponsors unless you are your audience, unless you know what they want. So the deadly sin that didn't make the cut, but now as I look back, if I were to, to rewrite this blog post and redo the infographic, um, I could almost call this the one deadly sin of sponsorship, and that is lack of audience data. You mentioned the blog, and just a note for the listeners, we'll put a, a link to that blog uh, and the sponsorship uh, collective up in the show notes on sponsor.net, so you can have a look at that. Chris has got a great infographic that marries up uh, with the blog, and there's also lots of other great links to other great resources and, and blogs and templates and processes and other, other infographics that Chris has put together to help you address or avoid all of these sins. And Chris, if people want to connect with you, what should they do? Best, best thing to do uh, is find me at sponsorshipcollective.com. Uh, that's my website. That is where I, I, I've written about 250,000 words to date on sponsorship on the blog, uh, including several blog posts that are in the three to 4,000 word range from building a sponsorship package to collecting audience data, um, valuation. So sponsorshipcollective.com, best place to find me. Uh, you can get in touch with me through my site. And, uh, and there are, uh, there are, so the way that I built this site, uh, I asked myself 15 years ago when I started to do sponsorship, uh, what do I wish was out there? And that is basically how I built the site and how I built my blog and the template. So there is a ton of free stuff um, uh, for you to access. We don't use a freemium model where you get like 80% of the stuff, but you have to pay an upgrade to get everything else. If you want to build a sponsorship program, you can do it entirely using our free services. Uh, sorry, our free, uh, our free public. Uh, and of course, if, if, um, if you want to bring me in, especially if you're in Australia during the winter, winters in Canada are very cold, <laughs> I will happily come and help you do it. <laughs> but yeah, we have a ton of free resources on our, on our blog. 
And listeners, you could do things worse than visiting Chris's blog and uh, website, sorry, and and access all that great content. I consume a lot of it. Uh, it always has some great insights and hints, hints and tips. Very, very practical. Chris Bayless, president and CEO of the Sponsorship Collective, or as he prefers to be known, a sponsorship geek. Thank you so much for taking us inside the seven deadly sins of sponsorship. A pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Wow, it was another great chat with Chris. And a reminder, if you if you like the way Chris sees things and frames the sponsorship world, then to head back to episode 16 and listen to the chat he and I had. Plus, as he mentioned, he's got a crazy amount of content on his website and it is super practical and really, really helpful. So simply head along to sponsorshipcollective.com or head over to sponsor.net where under the resources you'll find the podcast show notes where I've provided a link to Chris's site, also a link to his LinkedIn profile and a direct link to his seven deadly sins of sponsorship blog, which of course includes that infographic. While you are on Chris's site, be sure to check out and register for the virtual sponsorship conference that he's running, which is being held worldwide and online on November 15th, 2018. It has a great program and is priced really, really well. That's about all we have time for in episode 61. I hope you loved it. And also, don't forget, if you'd like a shout out, don't leave me feeling sad again. Please just get in contact. Let me know where in the world you are listening from, and I'll give you a shout out on the next show. We'd really love to hear from you. Or if you're too shy, help us, make us feel special, maybe head over to iTunes and leave a review. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponsorv.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponsorv. And if you want to connect with Sponsorv's commercial manager for Australia and New Zealand, Daniel Ferguson Hill, you can email him on daniel.ferguson at sponsorv.net or you can also find him on LinkedIn. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Sponsorv. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to sponsorv.net or search for Sponsorv on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.